0: Welcome back to another episode of Consciously Clueless. I'm your host, Carly, and I'll be your guide on this journey from consciousness to cluelessness and back around again. Today on the podcast, I talk to Adam Sud. In 2012, Adam's life was completely out of control. Once weighing nearly 350 pounds and struggling with multiple addictions, serious chronic diseases, and mental health disorders, his life nearly came to an end when he attempted suicide by drug overdose. He checked into rehab, and with the help of his parents and a plant-based diet, he began a journey that led to a remarkable recovery. Adam and I got into so many good conversations in this episode that we definitely weren't done, so this is only part one. Part two will come out shortly. Enjoy! Thank you for joining me. Yeah. Really excited. I've uh, followed you on social media for a long time, and I was really excited to get to learn more about your story and talk with you.
1: Yeah, me too. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I love having conversations uh, where we get to talk about, you know, our, our passion for healthy living, uh, healing foods, and then also the direction that we're we're headed in regards to understanding the the actual potential that whole food plant based nutrition has to offer. Um, not just in regards to what we call our physical health, just like you know, lipid panel, the right, biometrics right. Of, of your body, but also Emotional, psychological, mental well-being, cognitive well being, which look at the end of the day, we can say there's it's mind and body, but it's all one. It's all one body. It's 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 time we put an end to the idea that you have mental health and you have physical health and that they're separate. It's
2: mm, uh, just health. So
1: it's just health. Exactly. It's just health. Sure, the the way that those two communicate to us seems separate. Right. But there's so much interconnectedness between the two that uh i'm glad we're now starting to understand
0: yeah totally so the podcast is called consciously clueless and Mm -hmm. i came up with that name because i just felt like i was on this journey of becoming more conscious and learning a lot and then also having these moments where you're just kind of humbled by life and you're like oh i know nothing um sure. I'm clueless at the same time. So I yeah. like to start with asking people kind of like where you feel like you're at right now in this moment put you on the spot if the spectrum sure. was conscious to clueless like how are you feeling?
1: That's a that's a great question. That's a really interesting question because I'm currently in the middle of running a research study. So I'm currently in the middle of investigating uh, new territory. Mm-hmm. We're investigating the we're doing the very first controlled trial investigating the effects of nutrition on early addiction recovery outcomes. Wow. And specifically, specifically the mental health, the, 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 the mitigating factors of or the mediating factors of uh, early addiction recovery, which would be the psychological and emotional uh, variables in regards to sobriety, because it's an early addiction recovery study, meaning that what we're doing is we're investigating the effects that nutrition has on individuals in the early stages of treatment in a treatment center. Okay. So because this is a study on a population of people, as they check into the first part of the continuum of care, meaning technically it starts within 24 hours of individuals exiting the detox period and going into residential rehab. Okay. Uh, Because it's in a controlled environment, because it's in an overseen hospital environment, sobriety is not an outcome that we're looking for.
2: Mm.
1: What we're looking at is how does food, along with nutrition education, help or hinder an individual's ability to build a stronger foundation for which they recover upon that puts them on the right path towards long-term recovery? Wow. So we're, we are so when, in regards to what I feel confident in, what I know, and what I don't know. Uh, I feel confident that I know that I I know a lot, and there's more that I don't know about addiction, addiction recovery, the role nutrition has to play on addiction recovery, and what we are actually talking about when we talk about recovery in general. Yeah, um, I know. I know that we have a worldview. We have a worldview in regards to what we think addiction is, mm-hmm. and then we have real-world observation as to what addiction is, and the two don't align. And we're very, as a culture, we are very much trying to hold on to our worldview of what we think it is.
0: Can you say more about the differences, sure. like what that means?
1: yeah so when we talk about when i talk about worldview versus real world observation we have the people's perception of what addiction is Mm -hmm. what people think addiction is and why they think traditional recovery measures match that Mm. perception and that's worldview Mm -hmm. and then we have real world observation which is what is actually taking place what is actually occurring within the scope of addiction. And what is the real, or I wouldn't say real, but what is a more beneficial attempt at recovery or structure for recovery to match that reality? And that's real world observation. What are we actually seeing taking place and measuring in regards to it? And how does that differ from what people think addiction is and what they think works in regards to addiction recovery? And we are seeing two very different stories taking place and it's nobody's fault. Right. 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 It's nobody's fault. I'm not here to to blame or shame or anyone. I I think that uh, just like with any, any kind of healing modality, any kind of ideology, you start somewhere and you continually evolve by being open to the idea that you don't know everything. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Like what you're talking about. Right. Right. That you make a statement that says, from everything we know at this point, if you can start there, even with everything you believe to be true, from what we know now and what the research says now, here's what I believe. That removes this arrogant dogma yeah. that I'm right and you're wrong. I don't know if I'm right or wrong about addiction recovery. I have a very, uh, a strong opinion about it. right? And that opinion is a base is based upon personal experience, real world, world observation, and now currently running research. Will it change? I sure hope so. Right. You know, right. I want it to be even better than what I think. And am I open to being proven wrong? You're damn right. I'm open to being proven right. wrong Because my goal is not to be right. My goal is to make a difference. And so when I, what I would say is, what I know now and what I believe I know now is that I believe very strongly that we have an understanding on how to feed people that best serves them in the short term and the long term in both their physical and mental being as a whole, right? Not one diet for one, one diet for the other, right. one movement pattern for one, one movement pattern for the other. Uh, I believe that we have a system that treats for treating people with substance abuse that is outdated in a lot of ways, that works in a lot of ways, but is outdated in a lot of ways. Yep. I think we have a cultural view of addiction that is outdated in a lot of ways. And I, I'm very I'm very certain that what we need is to be very humble in our attempt to be less certain. <laughs> we need to be less certain about things so that we have the opportunity that when new ideas are presented, our ego doesn't say, hang on a minute, I don't like what you're saying. It's always the ego. Rather, right. Rather than, wow, I'm curious about what you're saying. Mm-hmm. If we can make that shift, I think we'll, we'll, in, in all aspects of life, I think that uh, humanity will be better off for it.
0: I saw some quote on Instagram today that I couldn't stop thinking about. And it was just like, normalize admitting that your opinion changed when you got new information.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: And I just couldn't, I was just like, yeah, I do. I think having a plant-based diet is the best diet. Yes. Are there more things to learn? Yes. Could I, you know, like, yes, absolutely. And I think that that's, you know, with everything going on, this is tangential, but you know, call out versus cancel culture or whatever it is kind of like on social media right now, Just the idea that like people are going to screw up. I've screwed up. Yeah. You know, like that's going to happen. And do we at the same time, can we call that out and then create space for someone to be like, yeah, I messed up or I was wrong or I didn't have all the information or whatever it is.
1: I think and I don't want to get too much into cancel culture, but I think that the problem with cancel culture is it doesn't give people it doesn't offer people the opportunity to be human. Mm Mm-hmm you either are right or you're not allowed to speak. And right or wrong is defined by a social gr- a group of social individuals who define it for the world. Right. And unfortunately, that is the antithesis of cr- critical thought. <laughs> and that's, that's, a, that's a problem in my book because what I want is to someone to be able to come say, yeah, you know what, I said and did some things that don't align with who I am now. And I know that because you are telling me things I was not aware of. And I would really like to start acting and believing differently. And then the response should be so glad you, you're saying this. I'm so glad you feel this way. Welcome to uh, the opportunity to think and feel differently instead of too bad. You don't have the right to speak anymore.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's on the other side, there's this kind of pushback where if someone says, I'm, I'm calling this out, this was really wrong. This was really problematic. There's this kind of like, oh, you're just trying to cancel someone. Like, no, I'm calling out that this was like really harmful and I hope they come to the conversation, but I can't not call it out.
1: Well, I think that, you know, call out culture has become, has become a very popular way to be loud Mm. on social media, Mm -hmm. right? To, to be signaling, look at, look at me, I'm part of the solution in Mm. a way,
2: Uh,
1: because calling out is more about the person than it is the problem. Mm,
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: You could call out a problem.
0: Like systematic injustice.
1: Right. Yeah. And then speak to it and say, I've heard, I've seen, I know this X, Y, and Z, and I'm calling this out. Yep. But call out culture for the most part from what I see, and I don't have, I'm not saying call out culture is right or wrong, but from what I see is call out culture is an accusatory blaming game. Mm Mm-hmm that focuses on person rather than problem right? In, in a lot of ways. But I also think college culture is great because it is opening the space for conversation as long as we give people the, the ability to be flawed. Right. You know?
0: Right. Totally. I want to circle back to something that you sure. said earlier that kind of sparked something in my brain. You said recovery I'm paraphrasing about recovery mm. kind of like whatever that means or like what we're defining that as um, yeah so I think that's a really interesting thing could you say more about that
1: yeah I, uh, I would love to say more about that so I'm a person in long-term recovery
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, from substance abuse I um, in 2012 um, I was battling the end stages of substance abuse disorder so I was abusing at a very extreme degree uh, amphetamines and opiates mm-hmm. Um, and I had been doing so for 10 years, uh, as well as uh, the um, destructive relationship with food. So I, I also weighed about 350 pounds. I had type 2 diabetes. I had high blood pressure. I had erectile dysfunction. And on August 21st of 2012, I attempted suicide and survived, mm. um, at which point I checked into treatment and was diagnosed with the aforementioned diseases: diabetes, high blood pressure, high right, cholesterol, right. Um, along with a host of other psychological and emotional conditions.
0: Because it's and health, put on,
1: right? Because it's right.
0: health overall. It's not just one or two thing here or there.
1: I was put on, and that's a, it's true because I have yet to see many people who suffer from. Uh, chronic disease, multiple chronic diseases, like obesity, heart disease, or diabetes, who are not also dealing with some kind of mental health issue at the same time. Not saying it's causational, but I'm just saying it's very, it's it's typical to see them co-occurring. Strong correlation. Um, And what I also was, uh, happened was I was, I was put on about 15 medications. Oh, wow. Wow. And, and thankfully about a year before that uh that meeting with the doctor in, in the in the rehab hospital I had the event the opportunity to hear a man named rip Esselston
2: mm.
1: uh, speak at an event uh, and for those of your listeners who may not know who rip Esselston is mm-hmm. he is the executive producer of the film the game changers he's also the author of the engine 2 diet book he's uh, was in the film forks over knives uh, his dad is the famous dr. Caldwell Esselstyn. Uh, these are two very uh famous leaders in the plant-based whole food, plant-based health movement. Mm-hmm. And I heard this message about plant-based nutrition. And essentially I'm sitting in this doctor's office and the doctor is given me the very typical story that you hear, which is you are diabetic. Mm. You, you know, you are depressed. You, you, you are, you know, all of these things yep. and you always will be. Yeah right? These are chronic diseases that you'll have for life. The diabetes will get worse. The Mm. heart disease will get worse. This is why you need to be on medication and you will be on medication for the rest of your life. And I was, I I can recall being being almost like transported back to that week at this event with Rip Esselstyn and his dad and people like Chef AJ and Doug Lyle, Jeff Novick, Dr. Michael Clapper, uh, Jane Esselstyn. And there was, every single one of them was telling me a completely different story. (laughs) Every single one of them was telling me a story that said, the reason why I found myself in that room with that doctor uh, being diagnosed with these conditions wasn't because of my genetics, wasn't because there was anything wrong with me, and wasn't because there was anything wrong with my body. It was because my body was doing exactly what it was predicted to do given the way i had been living my life. damn. and that if i was to simply make a shift in what i chose to put on my plate and how i chose to move my body, my body would also make a very healthy predictable response of reversal. and i decided to own that that story. i mm-hmm. said, you know what? i'm i'm done with the idea of, you know, being broken
0: that's hard because in that moment, then you're taking kind of this like responsibility.
1: Oh, absolutely. And
0: accountability and so. we, we don't want to do that.
1: You know, it's funny because that's so true. And you know, I, I, in the storytelling of it, I make it seem like the doctor told me, I said, I'm responsible, I'm the problem, I'm the solution. <laughs> Dr. Esselstyn said this, <laughs> and you know, in the retelling, it, it seems like that, but it was actually more of like a couple of days of being quite angry. Yeah, totally. And really, it came down to this this uh, recognition that I didn't know any other way to, to live. Mm, yeah, yeah. I was doing the best I could with what I knew and dealing with pain that I didn't understand in the best way I knew how to deal with it. Yeah. It wasn't working. I didn't know any other way to do it. I didn't know that it was okay not to know any other way to do it. <laughs> I didn't know that it was okay to ask people for help. Mm. I didn't know that I was safe enough to go to people and say, I'm sick. I'm in pain. I'm abusing substances. I'm afraid. And I don't know what to do. I didn't know how to feel safe in that attempt. Yeah. And if I did know how to do it, I would have done it. If I had known differently, I would have done differently. And I was able to sort of give myself permission to forgive my past self by saying, you know what you were doing the best you could with what you knew.
0: That's powerful. And I'm
1: so thankful that you'd never so thankful that you continued to write my story anyways. Yep. And surviving suicide is a very surreal experience. Um, because what it teaches you and what it taught me um, is that in the moment when I woke up on the floor, um, after surviving a, a, a suicide attempt by overdose.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I was overcome by this unbelievable experience of relief.
0: That you were alive. And
1: that I was alive. And that was this odd uh, moment. Because before that moment, I had always thought suicide was someone trying to end their life. And being relieved that I was still alive... Asked me to consider and reevaluate that belief system because the relief that was existing, that was arising in me, was saying there's something about your life and yourself that you love enough that even though you know today is going to be as painful as yesterday, you still want to be here and be a part of it. And that means that suicide is not an attempt to end someone's life, it's an attempt to end someone's pain. Mm. And When I was able to look back at that experience, I had always had this adversarial relationship with my body. Mm -hmm. I had always believed my body was my enemy. I, I, I was overweight for a lot of my life. I got criticized for my body not being what people in my life wanted it to be for my ability not to eat the foods they didn't want me to eat. I had placed all these You know, false conditions upon myself that I thought I had to meet in order to be acceptable to the world. And I thought my body was the problem. But surviving suicide was this opportunity for me to look back and go, hang on a minute. I put my body through absolute hell for 10 years.
2: Hmm.
1: Every day, copious amounts of drugs, fast food, and unbelievable, like dangerous chemicals on a daily basis. And after 10 years of daily abuse, being overweight, having all these diseases, and then trying to purposely end my life, my body responded by saying, you know what? We've been fighting for you since day one, and we're not giving up on you. What if, what if our bodies have always been our partner? What if it had always been my partner, not my, ally, my adversary, but my ally, and I just didn't know it?
2: Yeah.
1: And what if I just didn't know how to serve it properly? So, what if now I were to use plant based nutrition as a act of care taking for a body that's never given up on me? What if.
0: Wow, I love that. Change, I love what that. Change,
1: <laughs> what if change is not about what you hate about yourself enough to change? What if change is realizing that you get to be a caretaker for a body that is always trying its best to take care of you, but has yet, you have yet had to fit. You have, or I had yet figured out how to be in a nurturing relationship with it. Yeah. And so then it's not, what do I hate about myself to change? What do I love enough to say yes to change? Why with everything else going on, the obesity, the drug use, the suicide, which I, of course, didn't want to die, didn't want to be obese, didn't want to have all these health conditions. Why not? What did I love enough to want to be comfortable being uncomfortable, to learn these new truths about myself and how I want to show up, to create these values and priorities that I want to live by that allow me to be that highest version of myself that I can hold front and center as a guiding compass towards one decision or the other?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How can I be that caretaker and Over the course of four months, completely reversed my diabetes, my heart disease, and my erectile dysfunction. Four months. Ten months. Yeah. And then in 10 months, lost over 150 pounds or 100 pounds. Um, And then in one year, was off of every single medication I was put on in rehab. I've lost 180 pounds of today. I've been entirely sober. But here's the thing. What I want to talk, going back to the question you asked, what is the perception about addiction recovery? Mm Mm-hmm. What is the perception? The perception is that my problem was drugs. Hmm. The perception is that my problem was food. That is the story that exists. The story that exists says that a person who checks into treatment who is abusing heroin has a problem with heroin.
0: But why are they abusing it?
1: This, was a, this is a dependency problem created by chemical hooks, chemical hooks that exist within the substance itself that creates the addiction. And so we have to create a system that allows them to abstain from use long enough so that they can see that they have this problem and then commit to a program that keeps them accountable and defining themselves as this addict who has a problem with heroin so they can abstain from it from the rest of their life. And here's the problem. When we talk about addiction, addiction at its core is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life has become too painful a place to be. The drug, the food, the sex, the gambling, the shopping, the whatever it is, isn't the problem. It's a solution to escaping moments of your life that are too heavy for you to deal with. You don't know how it got that way more than likely it was a very slight, very subtle, almost imperceptible shift into a state of disconnection you've never experienced before. When you're in it, the fog of it is so dense you can't see out of it. You don't know how you got there and it's terrifying. When we talk about the experience of being alive in a way that allows you to show up and be present for yourself and your life, where substances are no longer necessary, we have to think of human beings as bonding creatures. Hmm. Human beings have an unbelievable need to bond. There's an amazing book by a British journalist named Johan Hari, He wrote a book called Lost Connections. Phenomenal. It's the best book on mental health I've ever read in my life.
2: Wow. Okay, I'll have to look it up.
1: When he talks about humans and bonding, we, we think about these meaningful and loving bonds that human beings have. All of us share these things. We, have a, we, want, we want to have a loving and meaningful bond with ourselves both physically and emotionally that we want to show up and be present for every single day. We want to have a loving and meaningful connection to people in our lives that we share value with and who share value with us. We want to have a loving and meaningful connection with a purpose beyond ourselves within a community of shared respect. We want to have a meaningful and loving bond to the natural world around us that we want to show up and be present for every single day. And we want to have a meaningful connection with a future that makes sense to us and is achievable that we want to show up and be present for every single day. Now, when those bonds are severed by anything, whether when, no matter the trauma, no matter how severe, whatever, every, every single person in regards to trauma response is different. But when those bonds are severed, the pain of that disconnection is quite not only uh, uh, profound, but it's confusing. So take myself 10 years ago. I didn't have a meaningful relationship with myself physically or emotionally that I wanted to show up and be present for. I didn't believe I had the right to, to, to meaningful and loving connections with people in my life that I felt a, I was allowed to show up and be present for every day. Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't have a, a connection with a purpose beyond myself or within a community of shared respect that I could show up and be present for. And I also didn't have a meaningful connection with a future that made sense to me. In fact. At the worst of my uh, substance abuse, my future was quite scary. I didn't want to show up and be present for that every single day either. Now, when presented the opportunity to use and would use, I was then given a, a relief from that pain,
2: yeah.
1: unlike anything I'd ever experienced. And it was so, it, not only was it unbelievably successful at relieving that pain, it was delivered with unbelievable ease and repeatability.
0: That's what I was just thinking is that that easy access versus like therapy or, (laughs) you know.
1: And it feels incredibly, not only does it feel uh, relieving of the pain, but there's a biological response that allows our bodies to believe that we've done something that benefits its long-term success. Hmm. And so when given the opportunity in that state of disconnection to continue to use, the statistical likelihood of an individual saying yes to the continued use is very high. Now take myself at this point in my life. I have a relationship, a meaningful bond and connection with myself, both, both, both physically and emotionally that I want to show up and be present for every single day. I have a relationship with people in my life that I share value with and who I allow to share value with me that I want to show up and be present for every day. I have a relationship with a meaningful bond and connection with a purpose beyond myself that I want to show up and be present for every single day. I have a meaningful bond and connection with the natural world and a future that makes sense, that I want to show up and be present for every single day. In this state of profound connection, if I was to use drugs, for a reason, let's just say I went out and I used psilocybin or I used, you know, smoked marijuana or whatever it is, I would have the same chemical euphoric experience that anybody who uses would have. And then if that individual who brought me the drugs or if I had the opportunity to get more was presented to me, someone says, hey, you like that? I'll get you any as much as you want. How would you like it? The statistical likelihood of me saying yes is very low because I know that continuing to use those drugs removes my ability to mm. show up and be present for what means the most to me in life. Now, I had the same substances, right? Mm-hmm. Same chemical hooks completely different state of living. One was in, completely, in complete disconnection, the other existing in profound connection. And so Johan Hari, who I mentioned, gave an unbelievable Ted talk called Everything You Know About Addiction Is Wrong. And it's <laughs> phenomenal. And I think it's one of the best ways to point it out is in a uh, study that was done. We've all heard the study uh, that says, um, you put a rat in a cage. And you give the rat the choice between water or drugs, food and water or drugs. Oh, yeah. And once the rat, once the rat discovers the drugs, it will continue to use those drugs in about 10 to 12 days it's going to be dead. Now they've used that model for years to say, there you go. You see what we're talking about? The drugs caused the addiction, right. the chemical hooks that existed within the drugs, drove the animal to those drugs repeatedly, even though it could do the things that benefit its health, it kept going to the drugs and it killed itself. And there was a professor, Bruce Alexander, in Canada. He said, Hang on a minute. This was actually back in the 70s. He said, Hang on a minute. We put a rat in an empty cage. He has no other choice but to eat or do drugs. That's not the real world. And so he designed something called Rat Park, which is heaven for rats. Essentially, it's a big area with, with uh, the rat had lots of toys. He had uh, things to run around on. He had loads of cheese. He had other rats that he could have sex with and, and build families and have social structure with. And they had the drugs. What he found, what they found in Rat Park is that in Rat Park, none of the rats ever used the drugs compulsively. None of them ever overdosed. Most of them don't even like it. Some of them use it, but they don't use it compulsively. So is drugs or are drugs an adi- or drug addiction an adaptation to the chemical hooks or is it an adaptation to your cage? Whoa. Whoa. The real world observation that we're seeing is that most of, most of the time it's an adaptation to your cage. The chemical hooks and drugs play a role in creating chemical dependency and compulsion, Right. but addiction and dependency are two separate things.
2: Dependency
1: Mm. is a biologically created condition upon which you can no longer exist without the substance, without experiencing a physical response. Addiction is about pain you cannot escape without it. Wow. And so when we talk about treatment, treatment is about how do you stay away from drugs, less about how do you find meaningful connection in your life. And we need to make a shift towards... I'm not saying, I believe abstinence plays a huge role within the first year to two years of drug of substance abuse recovery because continued use does alter brain chemistry and that brain chemistry has to be rebalanced. I'm not saying let's allow people to use as much as they want while they're in their recovery. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is substance abuse is and never has been a problem of drugs. Drugs don't cause drug addiction right? Just like food doesn't cause eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right, Drugs don't cause. In fact, what we've done in response to drug addiction is we've created the war on drugs. And the war on drugs is such an abysmal failure that they can't even keep the drugs out of the prisons. Okay. (laughs) This is a massive failure of humanity. Yeah, And what they've done is they've taken the most lucrative industry that has ever existed in human history, right? Substances, right? So we'll call them illegal substances, but let's just call them euphoric substances. They've taken the most lucrative product that has ever existed in in human history, and they've given it to an industry of criminals and said, you control it. And so now you have people of unknown origins, right? We don't know who they are. That's using, using substance. You have unknown people. Using unknown substances of unknown origin and uh, origin and unknown potency, delivered through unknown criminals of unknown criminal means in incredibly dangerous situations. That is how we're answering the problem of substance abuse. Are you serious? We tried doing that. It's called prohibition. <laughs> prohibition <laughs> on alcohol created more deaths from alcohol per day than ever in human history. Why? Because if alcohol isn't readily available, you want the biggest bang for your buck. And so they created incredibly powerful alcohol that a lot of times after one drink would kill you. And you had to procure it through incredibly dangerous methods that you could die from doing so anyways. You had industries who were killing each other to control the market. What happened the day after prohibition ended? We said, great. Go ahead, have your alcohol. We're going to create systems and, 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 uh, and accountabilities that let you know exactly what you're buying, where you're buying it, what it is, how potent it is, where it came from and that you're safe when you drink it. Since then, the number of deaths from alcohol poisoning have dropped significantly. The criminal element lost their products. Guess what? They don't really sell alcohol anymore. Right? The same thing, we saw it take place. We saw prohibition as an utter failure and we changed the system. Yet we never did the same with drugs. Countries all over the world, Portugal, Switzerland, they have done this. Portugal was the first country to legalize, or sorry, decriminalize every substance from cannabis to crack. And as a result of doing so, they've taken the money that they used to separate people from the communities and put them into institutions for being addicts and criminals And they've created programs that say, if you want to get off drugs, we will help you do so. And then, let's say you're a mechanic or a chef, we'll find you a kitchen and we'll say, hey, if this guy is a chef and he's trying to get off of substances, if you employ him, Portugal will pay half his wages for a year. This allows this person to not only feel like I'm a part of a community where I offer value and service and a purpose beyond myself. But I also feel like my country and the people of the population care about me. Mm -hmm. I'm not shamed. I'm not a problem. I'm a human being that they want to see do better. We can do that. We have to make a radical shift. And it starts by recognizing that substances are not inherently the problem. I'm not saying I want to legalize everything. I don't think we should legalize every substance. I think they should all be decriminalized. Mm -hmm. I don't think we should legalize everything because you can't have people going around on unknown amounts of psilocybin driving around. That's not gonna be smart, right? And so there's gotta be systems in place for it. But at the end of the day, we've been treating drug addiction the same way for a hundred years and it's getting worse. And it's not because of the drugs. It's because of how we're treating it, how we're t- what we're telling people about it, the systems that we have in place to criminalize people for using it for reasons they don't understand and it needs to change.
0: Your example with Portugal, I think is interesting because the first mm-hmm. thing that I notice or that kind of comes to top of mind for me when you were talking about that is like, wow, it seems like Portugal is really prioritizing community and people over money. And that yeah. I think when we think of like big pharma and drugs, the war on drugs and all of that, the money connection is unavoidable.
1: Well, not only that, the war on drugs is expensive. Okay. People don't know how much it costs to fund these criminal, these drug criminal task force. All right. All the programs that go into creating prison systems for uh, for, criminal, for criminals uh, who are dealing with drug issues. Okay. And all of it goes into funding the war on drugs is very expensive, very expensive. And it's making the situation worse every year. Uh, we have a political system that likes to base its political parties around. We're all for the war on drugs and it sounds great, Yeah, but the war on drugs is a war on drug users. Mm. It's not a war on drugs. And that's where the problem really lies. And when it comes to substance abuse recovery, I looked at my story, I looked at my story and I said to myself, did I avoid drugs or did I create a system of values and priorities that allowed me to make choices that moved me in a direction towards a life where drugs were no longer necessary? Right. Was I avoiding drugs or was I accepting and choosing decisions that made, that allowed me to move forward in a positive manner? I've been a martial artist for most of my life. And I had a a sensei who said, every decision to not do something is in reality a decision to do something else. Anybody who is standing right now has chosen to stand. They didn't decide not to sit, okay? You can't not do drugs. You're doing something else. You can't abstain from something. You are choosing another choice. The abstinence model is a model based around fear and avoidance. Yeah, yeah. And I understand why it works. I understand why it seems like it works. Uh, We have a miserable track record within substance abuse recovery. 70% of individuals who check into treatment today will be back into treatment within one year. And I'm not saying that that's because of the abstinence model of recovery. It's a lot of factors. But what I do know is that a person who is counting days of abstinence is putting themselves into a system that means that success is success is based upon perfection. Huh. Right. That success is perfectly is about being perfectly abstaining from my substance for as long as possible. And if ever one decision is made outside of the boundaries of abstinence, I'm a failure. And the problem with that a is a lot of human pressure. Well, and human beings are are imperfect creatures for wonderful reasons and wonderful things about being imperfect creatures. And we can't expect people to feel safe in their imperfect nature if anything less than perfect is considered a failure. Okay? That is a big problem with the identity of addiction. Come into a room, you count your days of not using, you consistently show up and identify yourself and label yourself as an addict who has a problem with drugs and AA model works for a lot of people. There's a lot of amazing things that I like about AA. I'm not here to bash AA. Mm -hmm. I think AA is wonderful because what it does, is a community of people that you walk into a room and every one of them says, not only do I see you, I believe every story you have to tell me. Yeah. That is hugely important in recovery. Not only do I believe you, I know it. Yep, I know your story. I've lived it. You're safe. But AA has not shifted in its ideology since 1950.
0: 1950. And what we're
1: seeing, what we're seeing in the world is that – what we're seeing in the world is the observations that are occurring is that substance abuse is far more than just the substance like we talked about.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I want to see the addiction recovery programs make a shift in how we treat people in substance abuse recovery. And so that's one of the reasons why I decided to run the research study that I'm running right now, which is called the Infinite Study. And it's called the Infinite Study simply because the treatment center where we're running it is called Infinite Recovery. It's not about some like forever thing. <laughs> um, but um, uh, what I what I was shocked to discover um, a few years after getting sober, so after ten months of recovery, I left. Uh, treatment. I was in rehab for 37 days and I spent 10 months in a sober living facility. And when I checked out of sober living, I was completely medication free and the healthiest I'd ever been. I spent those 10 months with about 15 other guys. And at the end of their stay there, they were on either the same amount of medications and and higher dosages or on more medications. They were sober. And it's important that sobriety and recovery are two different things. Mm. Sobriety is the Uh, absence of use. Okay. Recovery, in my opinion, is the process of becoming whole. Wow. And what was the big X factor that I identified was that I adopted plant-based nutrition in recovery. The other individuals didn't. Not that their diets were all inherently bad, but what did the research say around nutrition and recovery? Nothing. There has never been a single study of any kind in a controlled trial setting, investigating any diet on early addiction recovery outcomes. Wow. And so I said, this is going to be my mission. This is going to be my, my purpose. I'm going to connect to this and I'm going to create this research. And so about two years ago, we started developing what's called the infinite study, okay. where it is a controlled trial being run at a treatment center. Um, and we are investigating the effects of two diets. So a controlled trial means that you have a control diet mm-hmm. and then you have a treatment diet. So the control diet is simply the diet that was already being served at the treatment center, which is like an elevated Western diet. It's kind of like a modified paleo diet. Okay. In fact, when we looked at it, uh, we were kind of worried because they do have a good amount of whole fruits and vegetables in the diet, except they do allow for lots of meat, eggs, dairy, and oil, um, salt and refined sugar in small amounts. but I mean, like these, it's important to understand that people who enter substance abuse treatment at the end stage are overfed and undernourished or underfed and undernourished mm. because people who are at the end stage of substance abuse will always prioritize using over any other self-care practice. Right. Right. So typically if using is your number one concern, eating doesn't, it doesn't matter. Eating healthy really doesn't matter. Right. Um, and any extra dollars you have that will get you the healthier meal you're going to use for drugs. Right. So we knew that every individual was going to see improvements in most categories that we're measuring, but we wanted to observe what was the difference. And so after 24 hours of detox, people have the opportunity to join the treatment, uh, the the study, and then choose which dietary group they're going to be in. Hmm. The reason why we didn't do a randomized controlled trial, which is the gold standard of research, even Mm -hmm. though a controlled trial is very, very highly regarded research. Is because from what we know about treatment recover or recovery is that individuals in treatment who are given the power of choice do better. Right. Control. And academ- exactly. And academia can scrutinize the study all they want for it not being randomized controlled. I'm not doing this as much for academia. Yes, I am doing it so that academia can start to change their perception, but I'm doing this mostly for people who are struggling. Right. And so they choose which diet they want, and then they are put on a dietary protocol that matches that diet. And so the treatment diet is a whole food plant-based diet. Uh, In fact, the menu was designed by a woman named Brenda Reed, who designs all the menus for Rip Esselstyn's Plant Strong Events. Oh, wow. Um, And so – they're also given nutrition education to match their diet because we know that people who get nutrition education and in, re- in treatment do better because of the self efficacy that's gained right and then we do a whole host of measurements we measure a full blood panel so your full lipid panel uh cholesterol triglycerides a1c which is a diabetes measurement yep. um then we do things like blood pressure omega 3 panel we do um D3, B12, a whole host of other vitamins, high sensitivity C reactive protein, which is a measurement for inflammation. Hmm. Then we also measure uh, your microbiome. So, this is also a microbiome study. And for those listeners who are not familiar with the microbiome, the microbiome is the ecosystem of bacteria that exist within your gut that do things for your body that your body can't do for itself. So, everybody who's listening, whether they know it or not, has four to six pounds of bacteria living in their gut right now that are doing various things for your body that your body and your DNA, your own cells can't do for you. Um, so your, your gut microbiome is not you. But what's interesting is that your gut microbiome is so unique to you that it's more unique than your DNA. Um, so if I was to do a DNA test and then sample your, your microbiome, Your microbiome would be more unique to you than the next person than your dna to the next person
0: wow i did not know that
1: the other thing is this this statistic that i'm about to share is the one that really blew my mind that really drives home how overwhelmingly impactful your microbiome is so carly if i was to take you right now Mm -hmm. and i was able to count every single one of your human cells Cells that make up Carly that's on the other side of this call with me right now, it would number roughly 10 trillion. There's roughly 10 trillion Carly cells. Now, if I was to take your gut microbiome and count up the number of cells that make up the four to six pounds of bacteria that are in you right now, that are not your DNA, they're not you, they would number 300 trillion. So of all the cells, <laughs> of all the cells that exist in this person right now, You are less than 10% human, which is a really mind blowing statistic on the impact that your gut microbiome has in regards to your overall health. So if your gut microbiome is most of the cells that exist within you, most of the cells in you right now are not your human cells. The health of those cells is unbelievably important. And we're just beginning to scratch the surface of what that truly means. And we've all heard the statistics that 90% of your dopamine and 50% of, or sorry, 90% of your serotonin and 50% of your dopamine are produced within the gut. It's a really incredible statistic. It's fun to say, it's thought provoking, but the truth is none of those neurotransmitters cross the blood brain barrier. Mm. They never make it through the brain. However, specific bacteria, that are fed by unique plant fibers, produce short-chain fatty acids and other various nutrients that do cross the blood-brain barrier that are required for specific neurotransmitter formation like dopamine and serotonin. So your gut health is directly related to how well your brain can produce those neurotransmitters. And so we are looking at the changes in individual's gut microbiome their blood biomarkers, and how both of those changes relate to validated scales of measuring a whole variety of psychological, emotional, and mental health outcomes. Everything from anxiety and depression and obsessive compulsive drug use, mania, to resilience, self-compassion, and spiritual healing. And what we're seeing so far, we've run the study now for over 12 months. We finished the participant part. We're actually in the process of doing data analysis. And we have an amazing team. Mm -hmm. Our MDs are doctors, Dean and Aisha Sherzai, who are the world's leading neuroscientists on cognitive longevity and brain health. They've been Uh,
0: so instrumental in me, like discovering my why in this and like what I come back to, like my grandma has Alzheimer's. And when I read that book, it just changed everything.
1: It changed everything for me. They are remarkable. Yeah. And, um, we have uh, Tara Kemp is the lead researcher mm-hmm. on the study and she's an amazing researcher at NAU who uh, is also, um, she's doing a study in something called psychosocial health, mm-hmm. which is a PhD in psychology, sociology, and nutrition.
2: That and is what we are my seeing, alley.
1: What we are seeing after these 12 months, and I cannot give you exact data. Of course. not. But what we're seeing is that individuals in the plant-based group are outperforming the control group in every measurable outcome. This is exciting. That is really powerful. Now, I'm not saying that food is the solution to addiction recovery. Right. right, I'm not saying that food is going to get you sober. But what I do know is that we have a huge missing piece of the puzzle. Yeah. A person who checks into treatment right now can be given data and statistics that say, if you do these different therapy modalities, you can get you can expect or predict these results. We know it from studies. If you add exercise, we can predict these results. If you add you know, meditation, you can get these results. We've known it. We've studied it. Yet one of the most controlled variables in treatment, what you eat, when you eat, and how much you eat. We can't tell you anything. We have no idea. And so now we're actually going to be bringing a piece to the puzzle that has never been filled in and what I like to tell people is like if and I'm sure everybody here has been doing, has done a puzzle, puzzle at some time in their life is that when there's a missing piece to a part of it, and you go, oh, that looks like a frog," then you find the piece, you go, "Oh my gosh, there was a fish It's <laughs> not at all what it, you thought it was, right? Yeah And so it changes our understanding of how we best serve individuals in treatment, and you know for a person who has you know, the unfortunate side of being in recovery for as long as I've been, and I'm, I'm not a long timer. I've been, I've been in recovery for eight years, but still is that I'm a person who's very open-hearted. Mm-hmm. So I made a lot of very close friends and I lost a lot of close friends.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I lost, uh, eight to 10 friends, um, uh, to suicide and overdose. So 10 friends from suicide and overdose combined. Um, and I, I, these are not flawed humans. This was a system that failed.
2: Right.
1: And I'm not saying this, that this nutrition understanding would have been what saved them. I'm just saying that if we knew this, maybe it would have saved some of them. Right. And so I take it very seriously. Um, and I, it's, a, it's a huge part of, of why I show up every day. And I'm hoping that um, when we do publish the findings in the medical journals this summer, uh, we were contacted by NIH very early on, which is the National Institute of Health. Anytime you run a clinical trial, your research has to be uh, listed on something called Mm -hmm. clinicaltrials.gov. Any of your listeners right now can go to clinicaltrials.gov and you can look up the infinite study. You can see everything about our research study. Uh, A neuroscientist within NIH called us, contacted us, and she said, This is the most comprehensive research study on mental health we've ever seen. Damn. When you're done, we would love to work with you to develop the first dietary protocol, dietary guidelines for mental health recovery, because there isn't one.
0: That is so incredible. I'm so excited to hear more. Maybe in the future, once everything's out, if you'd be willing to come back on and do like a
1: Absolutely. Check
0: in on everything. I'm cognizant of time. because you're, you're almost up with time, right? Yes. Okay. So I I have like 50 million questions <laughs> that came <laughs> well, let's up. Let's do
1: another one. We'll, we'll schedule another one in like a week or so. And we'll, we'll do a back-to-back episode or something.
0: That sounds great because everything yeah. you just said, I was like, okay, bookmark that, bookmark that. I have a question about that. If you're willing, that would be so great. Cause I yeah. think you just laid the foundation for everything. And now I want to mm-hmm. like, Probe it and ask questions. Let's
1: do it. Let's do it. Okay. Let's save this episode for a two-parter.
0: That sounds amazing.
1: All right. I'm really excited to do it. And I know I, I like ramble a lot, but that's just because I'm so passionate about this stuff.
0: No, 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 no. That's, that's, first of all, that's literally how I am. So I see you in that. But I, <laughs> I was laughing because when you were kind of like dropping some statistics and some parts of the story in my head, I was actually thinking, not many people can make me speechless. (laughs) There's not often a time where I don't have something to say, but I literally was just sitting here like open jawed. Holy shit. This is incredible. So thank you for sharing not only about your own journey and everything that you've gone through, but everything you're working on. We're lucky to have you in this lifetime.
1: Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. And Uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that you have this platform to share the, these conversations with it's so important Mm -hmm. and thank you for connecting with me. Thank you for reaching out and let's do the second part. Let's do the second part of this conversation as soon as possible so that you can get this out there.
0: That sounds great. I will um, follow up with you soon. Have a good call.
1: Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your week.
0: Thank you. You too. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to another episode of Consciously Clueless. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe wherever you're listening. If you want to help me get this into the ears of more listeners, send it to a friend, text it to a family member, share on social media, and tag me. Whatever you can do really helps me out. If you want to be read on air as a podcast review of the week, head over to Apple Podcasts and give it a review if you haven't yet, check out patreon.com consciouslycarly. There's so many good things happening over there on Patreon, so check it out. And finally, if you haven't yet, go to my website and click on courses and look at the new self-love reset course. I think you'll love it. Until next time.